0: Trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue from in you, and I think to myself what a wonderful world.
1: Welcome back to Poets and Lunatics. This is going to be probably my favorite episode to date. It's our GK Chesterton episode, and we've got a very special guest, but before we jump into that, I want to actually, we had a comment last week, and uh, it was very insightful and humorous, so uh, I wanted to bring it up. Joe Cool, 4112724, tweeted us and suggested that, (laughs) in putting it kindly, that We spend less time trying to remember people's names when we forget them. So from now on, (laughs) I'm going to just refer to anyone's name that I don't remember as Ralph Henderson. And if that's not his name, you'll just know that Ralph Henderson is my name that I go to when I forgot someone's name. Because I'm not going to have time to look it up. And we don't have enough time to prepare to actually remember those people's names. We're off the cuff here. All right. Moving on. Our very special guest, Kaiser Johnson, how
0: are you today? I'm very well, thank you. So good to see you. Great to see you as always.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Kaiser, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, an actor here in Los Angeles and has been doing a lot of exciting work, and we'll get to that towards the end. But first of all, we're here to talk about Chesterton, so let's talk about Chesterton. Let's do it. What turned you on to this author, this philosopher without peer to begin
0: with? (laughs) Um, Well, uh, originally I... Had heard some of his quotations and stuff in college, uh, and that's how most people get introduced to Chesterton. I think is through hearing a quotation or two. Um, a lot of times it's misattributed, uh, <laughs> you know, to somebody else, or yeah. or it's yeah. it's a quotation he never said that's attributed to him, and it really sucks as a quotation. And uh, that's a bummer that people try to attribute something really stupid to him, but um, but I first heard about him through his quotations, and then uh, my brothers gave me a book of his uh, for Christmas. Um, it was Orthodoxy. Actually, they gave me Orthodoxy, and then they gave me a collection of his works of um, St. Thomas, um, St. Francis, mm-hmm. and uh, the Everlasting Man all put together in one of the uh, Ignatius volumes there. So that's The Dumb Ox is that what it's called or wait no what's it called? It's, it's just called St. Thomas Aquinas St. Thomas Aquinas okay yes, yeah Okay. Yeah. maybe I, subtitled The Dumb Ox uh, something like that yeah, yeah. I, he opens it by talking about St. Thomas Aquinas as it, The Dumb Ox something about how the bellow of The Dumb
1: Ox was heard around the world or something like yes, that yes I
0: believe so yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's I been several so years
0: since I've read it but yeah that sounds right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. no I
1: remember that book I, I thought that was that was a great intro
0: yeah yeah, so that's
1: is. how you got started. But what made you fall in love? Now,
0: well, I have to say,
1: Kaiser, sure. I got to give you props. Okay, I've never run into anyone, let alone an actor, not a philosopher, or mm-hmm. a, you know, you're probably also a philosopher as well. <laughs> Maybe you
0: very amateur,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but someone that's not a PhD at least yeah. uh, be able to sum up Chesterton. Uh, just so concisely and so profoundly. Uh, Kaiser runs uh, G.K. Chesterton Club here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and I've been lucky and blessed enough to attend a few meetings. And, folks, this guy is able to just say, okay, here's orthodoxy, bam! Here's the second chapter, here's the ninth chapter, and this is how it all fits together, guys. Mm-hmm. I love that. So... Thank you. I th- I pick up that there's a lot of not just respect, but also some love. So how did you fall, yes.
0: fall in love with this guy? Well, that's a good question, too. Um, okay, so I fell in love with Chesterton, I guess, in the usual way that you fall in love with anyone, of, of coming to know them better and uh, and experiencing more of of who they are and the part of themselves that they want to share with you. And I think Chesterton does that now, you know, almost a century after... Uh, he died, you know. He died in 1936, and now we are, we're here 80 years later. And I think Just he's as poignant as ever. Yeah, and so I I read more of his works after really enjoying Orthodoxy and uh, struggling through The Everlasting Man because uh, it is a bear <laughs> to read. <laughs> it's a beautiful one, but it's it's it, a bear to read. It, I agree. And um and you know then I did some work with uh with Dale Alquist uh, who's president of the American Chesterton Society. Ah. He had me on his show uh to do um. To, act out some things from, uh, Chesterton's works and, uh, some sketches and stuff to help further explain Chesterton. And it was there, I think that I really started to more deeply appreciate it. Um, hearing it and, and understanding Chesterton more by, uh, hearing Dale explain it and, uh, and, and go through all those sorts of things with, with him and more of a, you know, one, one lover of this great author, uh, sharing it with someone who's a sort of a neophyte there. And, um, and that's, I think sort of where it it really came to, uh, sitting at the master's feet as it were. Sure. So, but you also must've probably
1: spent some time trying to get into Chesterton's head, given that you had to act him out.
0: Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So and, I mean, and that's something to be able to put life to his works because he's such a, an, an author who writes on a deeper level than just you know sort of the sparseness that's on the page uh, that you find with a lot of modern authors where uh their opinions are are right on the surface but not particularly profound his are well like he talks about in in the book uh, the well and the shallows is is because he had this great catholicity of of thought that he does have his his thought is ever present in, in everything that he's writing. But there's this deep mysticism Mm. to it that, uh, it's more difficult to plumb the depths of what he's writing, even though he says, he says things in a way that you realize you've always thought them and you've always understood them, but you've forgotten how to understand them. And he reminds you how to understand them in the first place. So. My goodness. That's, that sounds beautiful, but can you give me an example? Sure. Um, Well, let me use one of his examples (laughs) that he he talks about in the introduction to orthodoxy, how it's the story of he he pictures himself almost as this uh, sailor who goes off to explore uh, a new world and he sails off and he gets lost in the fog and He gets turned around and ends up right back on the on the white cliffs of dover Mm. and he plants the flag of england straight on the white cliffs of dover and he says a lot of people would think that this explorer was just a fool but he said to me this explorer is the most enviable of men because he's had all the incredible joy and exhilaration of exploring a new land and all the comfort of returning home again in one moment and so Chesterton says that the book Orthodoxy is the story of how he invented Christianity and then discovered that it had been invented two thousand years before him. And that I think is how he brings that to everything that he writes, and he puts things in a way that bring that to everybody else. You know, he in for instance in Orthodoxy, in the paradoxes of Christianity, he talks about one thing that Convinced him that the church was was real, although not initially, was that the church was criticized on both sides uh, of an issue. It was criticized as being um, pacifist, and and that uh, priests wouldn't fight, and. Then he said, on the, on the other side, it was criticized because the church had caused all the wars of history and the earth smoked to heaven with the blood that the church had bathed <laughs> it with. And he said, it's either one or the other, or it's a monster more, more hideous than can be conceived if it is both of those things. And then he began to realize, wait a minute, what if the church is the perfect mean and... He, he says, what if there's a man who's perfectly proportioned and mm-hmm. a, a fat man thinks he's far too thin and a thin man thinks he's far too fat? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that the church, he begins to imagine as this, <laughs> this rock that's balanced, uh, it's on a point, standing on one point and it's balanced two, you know, with this weird protrusion on one side and a different weird protrusion to perfectly balance it on the other side. And he says, uh, the heresies would have it... Uh, fall one way or the other because they'd be too much on one side or too much on the other side. But he says, uh, throughout history, what we see is that the heresies go whizzing by it and they leave the church reeling, but erect. Mm. So I think that that's something where he so succinctly and emotionally and clearly puts just common sense that uh, it's something that, Again, it reminds you of something that you'd forgotten that you already knew. And it's such a visceral reminder. Yes. You're just in that moment. It's like a, it's a little slap across the face mm-hmm,
1: because, mm-hmm. you know, he's called the apostle of common sense. Yes. And and you realize, holy cow, he's just saying stuff that's common sense. Yes. But he's saying it in a way that's far more intelligent
0: than I am to actually mm-hmm. realize that it's just common sense to know it. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And that's, that, you know. Part of what is common sense you know he's he's got this love of paradox and that's yes. uh mm-hmm. something that that has been appreciated about him by authors throughout uh since the time he he was writing to you know today um and he said paradox is common sense uh and he said in the past the uh he said the regular man is able to see a paradox and accept it mm-hmm. uh, he said it's it's our great fault today that now, we refuse to accept the paradox and therefore nothing makes sense mm-hmm. um, in our world because uh, he said, you know, the paradox is, is sort of like um, the fact that you can't look at the sun, but in the light of the sun, you see everything else that exists. Mm-hmm. The one thing that you can't fully understand, you accept as a mystery and you're willing to accept as a mystery. It and it illuminates everything, everything else. else. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's. I think that that reminds me of that chapter. I think it was in Heretics where he talks about the suicide of thought. Yes, uh, actually, that's that's the
0: second chapter
1: of Orthodoxy. Is Orthodoxy? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 There you go. Just. Uh, yeah, the way it just that thought that that of how you see that every time you know you step into a room these days in Hollywood where that you know they have the the bought in to these concepts that end thought they end the process of right. being able to think about objective ideals to begin with right we're both striving to create art mm-hmm. and so in our degree we are artists but uh what so in that capacity and from yeah. that perspective what is art and what is the point of doing it through Ch- chesterson's point of view
0: yeah so i think primarily he's got a great quote that's um that summarizes what he's he thinks he said you know that uh, Art is the signature of man. And it's the first thing that we know about humanity is that man is an artist. Um, He says, you know, uh, he was writing, um, I believe it was in... I think this was in Heretics. Um, No, it wasn't. It was in Everlasting Man because he starts with the man in the cave. Yes. Uh, And he says, you know, the first thing that we know about man, we, we look at cave paintings and we go, oh, he was a brute, he was a hunter, he was this. And he says, that's not what the cave paintings tell you at all. He's depicting something that he does in his for necessity. That's true. But what you're missing there is what's staring you in the face is that man is an artist. He's creating paintings and art of something that he does. Um, to no end but to create something beautiful and to share a story with the next generation. Um, and that is totally gratuitous. And and that's what art is. He says art is communication and not just mere expression. So the idea that, uh, you know, where you see things like performance art and things like that where people say, I just want to express this part of myself. He said that, that doesn't cut it. That's not art. Art is a communication of truth, beauty, and goodness. And if it's not that, it's not art. Mm-hmm. You can't just express yourself. Any Any... Anybody can express themselves by, you know, wailing or throwing a tantrum. Right. And Homeless men on the street express <laughs> themselves to me
1: every day when I say I don't have any change to give them. I'm sorry.
0: Well, <laughs> that's not necessarily
1: art. It's not art. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, but that's not to say that, of course, the performing
0: arts like dance couldn't be art. Oh, but absolutely. Just if, they they are, if they are communication right. of truth, beauty, and goodness, they are absolutely art. Um, and I, so that, I think, is... And he says... There's a a quality about art that he talks about that I think is very important. He says, there is a line from the eye to the heart that does not go through the intellect. Mm -hmm. And that's both a positive and a negative. The positive is that you can deeply affect someone's understanding of the world and someone's understanding of humanity and someone's understanding of truth uh, through beautiful art. Uh, It's also a danger in... The sense that when we make bad art, uh, that doesn't express truth, beauty, and goodness, that can can poison the hearts of of many. So, uh, for artists, there's a a real um, obligation obligation yeah that's a good word for it to make good art. Yeah, it's something that I I come back to a lot in
1: this uh, podcast. Is we have to be formed like the mm-hmm. artist. I I think we've forgotten. The, the level of formation that is required for good art mm-hmm. and uh, there's many, uh, there's so many artists out there that are talented mm-hmm. um, and there's uh, quite a few artists that I've run into that are well formed mm-hmm. I haven't run into quite as many who are both very talented and well formed mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, yes not to say that if someone out there is doing that is going to obviously make it here like that's the, this industry is rare in that it doesn't need anybody. Right. No matter who you are, right. it'll be fine the next day. And yeah. there's already too many of us here to begin with.
0: Well, that's <laughs> the thing is is this industry what it needs and I guess I would say this to to people who are outside of the industry but think that they might want to be a part of it is probably the best part of it that you can play is to be a consumer of art okay. and an appreciator of art rather than Uh, specifically when it comes to entertainment, um, rather than necessarily a creator of it. Mm -hmm. You're right. There are plenty of very talented uh, artists who are making projects of beauty and are making projects that are truthful and good. Mm -hmm. And what we need is more audiences for that and audiences who appreciate that and love that rather than people who eschew going to the movies or watching anything on Netflix because they say there's nothing good out there that is wrong and is not true something that's always and
1: i agree with you completely and it's something that's frustrated me quite a bit and it doesn't have anything to do with chesterton but i think he wouldn't mind if we ask why is it that this audience in particular that, that always complains about mm-hmm. art not being good or you know the media being so terrible mm-hmm. is so hard to please in regards to anything that comes out it, all, at all
0: well i think there's a number there are a number of answers to that i think the first part of the answer is that it's much because of our concupiscence and our order i mean look at look at the garden of eden mm-hmm. adam and eve have everything they could need and they are already made in the image of likeness and the image and likeness of god and what does satan tempt them with he doesn't tempt them with something that they a, a real privation of any good he says God knows that if you eat of the fruit of the garden you will be made like God and they already are like God they're made in his image and likeness he tempts them with something that they already have and I think that's from the beginning something that affects us as human beings is we are tempted all the time to imagine privation and imagine and only see the negative things in our life rather than to do like Chesterton does and look at the world with wonder, to look at everything that is in your life and experience the wonder at the fact that it might not be. You might not be living and breathing right now, you may not have food on the table, you may not have a family as dysfunctional and disordered as your family might be. And Archbishop Sheen says that dysfunction is the constant state of the family. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that is sort of the definition of family, is that mm-hmm. it's uh, constantly in dysfunction. And um, But that none of this has to be. But God, in a wisdom that is far greater than ours, decides that it's good and that he can bring good from it for things to be the, the way that they are. Yeah, it's far yeah, it's too easy, far too easy. And, uh, for us to fall to our lower nature and go, well, there's nothing that's perfect out there, that's a, a perfect representation of of good and of God, and therefore there's nothing good out there. And that's not true. There's, there's beautiful art. There is uh, some that depicts evil, and there's some that has cuss words in it, and it's still good and beautiful and true. Um, there's certainly some stuff out there that is absolute garbage and some stuff that while it's well-written is still not upholding anything good or beautiful and just focusing on the seediest and most sordid aspects of, of humanity. And I would say, sure, go ahead and avoid that. But I don't think any Catholic can honestly claim that there's nothing good out there. Although...
1: You hear it do. a lot.
0: Yeah, you do hear it a lot. You hear it all the time. But I think that's a temptation. I mean, that's the same person who can go to Mass and find something to complain about mm. every time. Um, and look, I fall into that category sometimes, too, especially because here in California, especially in Los Angeles, um, there's a lot of sort of terrible liturgy out there. <laughs> uh, but the, Not naming any names. Not naming any names. <laughs> but it's, it's much more rare to find something that's good and true and beautiful. But the fact is, I know that there are places that I can find that in Los Angeles. Uh, And if I don't go and seek those out, if on a Sunday I don't make it to St. Victor's and I go to a a place where I know I'm going to find sort of a a disappointing liturgy, that's my fault, not the fault of, you know, I can drive to St. Victor's. Mm -hmm. I can make it there. Um, St. Victor's, for those of you who don't know, has, to my mind, the best liturgy in in Los Angeles. Um, But the same thing goes for the art that's out there. Mm If I don't have, if I don't go to the movies to and and, and pick a movie to see that is good, that's my fault. And that leaves everybody seeing movies that that aren't good. Um, And so if you want to have a voice and you want to affect change and you want to have an impact on your culture, seek out and find and patronize art that is good because more of that will get made then. I like it, so let's do it, and
1: everyone that listens, please do it. <laughs> please do that. That's your challenge <laughs> for today. Go do it. Go watch a movie. So, But speaking of works of art that are yes. of themselves good, mm-hmm. I wonder, what is your favorite Chesterton work of literature?
0: That's a tricky question to answer, there, because he's such, in one sense, he's such a varied author, and he writes about... All sorts of things and that he writes different types of literature he's got poetry he's got novels he has plays he has essays and he has nonfiction works Um, but in another sense he writes all the same Um, it's all Chesterton yeah it's all Chesterton and it's all his particular point of view on on the world so if I can I guess I'd pick so far. And again, I've actually read sort of a, I mean, I've read a lot more than most people, but, but I still have a sort of very limited breadth of knowledge on, on Chesterton. I've read, I've read orthodoxy four or five times. Um, and I've only read everlasting man once. I've never read, uh, most of his works. You know, he's generally regarded as having written about 6,600, uh, full pieces of, of literature. Um, and then, but, probably thousands more essays that are uncollected and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, because he was a great essayist. So I think Orthodoxy is so far my favorite book of his. The Last Chapter of Heretics, I think, mm. is the best thing of his I've ever read. Um, the My favorite fictional work of his would be hard to pin down I love the man who was Thursday I don't fully understand the man who was Thursday I don't think anybody does it's a nightmare it is a nightmare <laughs> so
1: wasn't it written for basically that one friend of his that would understand it <laughs> he says it in the introduction and it might be right yeah people were all angry about him afterwards why do you write this one thing that's only one person would understand it <laughs> like I said it in the introduction I didn't I didn't hold a gun to anyone to read yeah
0: but I think even even in that think Chesterton it's interesting you know Christ explained some parables only to his apostles and and the other people were not the worse for hearing the parables in the first place and I think maybe that's the way that it is with the man who is Thursday I think there's still plenty of understanding of God and understanding of the mysticism of Chesterton and understanding of the philosophy of Chesterton that we can hear from it and glean from it. And for me, it has sort of a profound emotional impact when I read it, even though I don't understand it really, and I don't understand the end of it, and I don't really get the allegory, and I don't really get all of it. We see through a glass darkly, but we still see, and I think that's uh, that's something that I love about it, is there is a mystery that I don't understand about it. And I probably won't ever, but I like it anyway. The yeah, the brilliance of Chesterton is even if we don't f-
1: understand the the point, we can still feel it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's very well said. Yeah, yeah. He he was always you know like the ball on the cross. Have, mm-hmm. you, have you? I've read the ball on the cross. too, yeah. Yeah.
0: also sort of a very. Uh, mystical book, but also a very uh, practical book. Exactly, yeah. but
1: also a difficult ending to understand. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> but, it reminded me a lot of Man, It Was Thursday in the way that it ended. And, yes, and,
1: yes. It's, it's, uh, it, you're kind of scratching your head and going like, what did I miss?
0: What wait, happened? So what happened? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the the flying in, if you've ever read that, same, same sort of thing where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the last chapter feels like nothing else in the book, and you go, wait, wait what happened? Did... Wait, did someone go crazy at the end? <laughs> are they in the mental institution, or are they dead, or are they alive? But oh, I'm confused. And I, I've I reread the ending chapter five or six times, and I still don't quite understand how it ended. Um, but that doesn't detract from my appreciation of at least the rest of the the work. Yeah. Um, it's still got a lot of goodness and a lot of truth to to share, and a lot of I think. Chesterton's greatest quality of this joy and wonder of Thanksgiving for everything yes um, so,
1: like what you were saying earlier that the gratitude for seeing a tree for the first time yes and as if it was the first time
0: yeah and seen for the
1: miracle that it is yes
0: yeah He says said we should not wonder at the earthquake we should wonder at the earth yeah and in the uh, the ethics of fairyland in or ethics of outland excuse me in um, orthodoxy he says you know uh in fairy stories the the rivers run with wine so that we can remember that they run with water and they grow golden apples so the trees go grow golden apples so that we can uh or golden leaves so that we can remember that they grow green ones mm-hmm. and um i think that's that's beautiful is that he and his his friend uh w.r titterton who was a, an author and literary critic um after he died he said i don't know what the church requires to make someone a saint but i think that if anyone was gkc was uh... he said he he went through a lot of suffering in his life that almost no one saw um, wow. the he had you know lots of physical ailments um, and uh... just this tragedy for him and his wife that uh, they were never able to have children and uh... death of his brother uh... was very painful to him and uh... and he said most people never saw that in chesterton that Chesterton was able to he said Chesterton said he thought his sufferings as nothing compared to the suffering of the garden and he thought his pain compared to nothing compared to the pain of the tree and that that Chesterton was able to he said Chesterton said thanksgiving are the highest form of thought and uh gratitude is joy doubled by wonder and that that idea of joy and wonder and grat- gratitude at everything, even if it was suffering, um, transformed the way that Chesterton looked at the world and transformed the people around him. And I think it can do the same for us today. I love it, mm-hmm. um, Kaiser. Let's.
1: I, I we're running out of time, sure. but I want to. I talk a lot. To, I want to <laughs> talk more. No, that's great. It's. Oh, I love it. I want to talk more with you. Can let's? How about this? Can we decide one work that we'll dive into, and, and we don't have to put a date to it, but sure. then we'll come back and talk about that?
0: Yeah. Do you have any uh, that you're you're particularly interested in? Because I'm uh, always I'm always game to read anything. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've read the
1: Man Who Was Thursday. Okay. I'd love to read that again and sure. see what I've if
0: I remember what I've don't understand. Yeah, that's great. Let's let's read the Man Who Was Thursday, and that you know. For us as people working in filmmaking and that kind of thing is is also there have (laughs) been I mean dozens of people who've wanted to make The Man Who Was Thursday into a film and none of them have come to fruition so far because it is such a challenging work to understand and to make so that it it, there has
1: been and Chesterton in general is a really hard Mm -hmm. hard author to to make films Mm -hmm. for like any book yeah that that you can think of yeah and and oh i lied actually there there was one that just
0: came out last year uh in what it was italian film or um something like that i don't don't remember some some european that's right but they yeah modernized it and based on the trailer i'm not 100 percent sure that they got what chesterton was right i mean not that like we got it but But But, uh, they may have gotten it even less somehow than i do (laughs) (laughs) just
1: challenging to imagine but possible well, I mean, I would be daunted trying to make a film off that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think like if I could choose a book that I would want to make a film off of from Chesterton, yeah. right at the top would be the Napoleon of Notting Hill, mm-hmm. that which is, I've remarkably never read, but it's, uh, it's everything that I want in a film. it's yeah. got the battle scenes. It's got the romances. Yeah, it's it's, it's gorgeous. It's, yeah, it's such a, a visceral image that you see, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah. It's not quite as mystifying at the end.
0: Yeah. Well, from what I understand, I mean, I've done a scene from it on the Apostle Uh of Common Sense on the TV show. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, from what I understand, The Napoleon of Notting Hill is a book that has been inspiring to many people. It it was one of the things that uh, reading it encouraged Michael Collins to fight for Irish independence. Oh, wow. Um, It affected the way that and influenced uh, Gandhi's understanding of uh, passive resistance. Hmm. Uh, and is that, the word, is that the word I'm looking for? Passive resistance? That's not what I'm looking for, is it? It's a Ralph Henderson moment. Yes, yeah. thank you. Wh- Whatever the proper term is, that's what I mean. And same thing for Martin Luther King Jr., that they, uh, uh, I believe he had some contact with the book as well. Um, well, I'm not surprised. So.
1: I'm not surprised. Yeah. It's it is inspiring to all mm-hmm. revolutionaries out there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even even us sitting here at this table. Yeah, those who have a quiet revolution. To, <laughs> so, what quiet revolutions are you working on currently? I, I, what, can you tell us anything about Sleepy Hollow or Vampire Diaries?
0: Yeah, well, sure. So, um, I I have a couple of very small roles in in uh, a couple of episodes of these uh, projects. I'm, I'm going to be in the season premiere of uh, Vampire Diaries. Um, on October 21st, and uh, then I have a, a small role in uh, Sleepy Hollow as well. Um, something interesting about both of those, it's, it's interesting that both of those projects have a certain sort of, if you haven't seen them, they have a certain sort of sense of the supernatural and a sense of uh, mysticism in both of the, these shows. And uh, that, I guess, is something that must come through in, in what I do, because that uh, it, those are the, you know, those are are some things I've been cast in recently so Um, and I'm currently you know doing a lot of uh, writing and uh, you know writing a a number of pilots I'm writing a couple of comedy pilots and stuff because I I do want to work on creating um, television that is good and true and beautiful and fun to watch Uh, and I'm also writing a drama pilot um, which is a little bit more from a mystical angle and that kind of thing. So, nice. um, yeah. Well, so, how can we find out more about you online? Well, you can follow what I'm doing up to the moment and up to the second on <laughs> on uh, Twitter. Uh, my handle there is just Kaiser Johnson, and on Instagram, same thing, um, and on Facebook, you know, yeah. Facebook.com/slash Kaiser Johnson. And how do In, how do the folks spell Kaiser? Just K A I S E R. Perfect and uh also i have a website kaiser johnson.com but you're better off finding me on twitter or instagram um those are the best places that's where i'm most frequently sharing what's going on and uh that kind of thing so yeah all right folks look them up online kaiser thank you so much
1: and i'm really excited about the next time we sit down and talk about the man who was thursday yeah oh uh,
0: last thing sorry sure uh If people are interested, are in the LA area, and want to find out about the Hollywood Chesterton Society, uh, or want to talk about Chesterton uh, more uh, in a more intimate setting, uh, feel free to join us. You can just look on Facebook and find Hollywood Chesterton Society, and then you can uh, uh, just RSVP that you attended a previous event, and you'll be automatically invited to the next one. So perfect. It's
1: it's very well worth the look, guys. It's a great (laughs) conversation. Very good. All right. Well, Kaiser, right. thank you again. And thank we'll you, see James. you very soon. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Sounds All right, good. folks. I'm your host, James Binello, And we'll see you guys next time on Poets and Poetics. I hear babies
0: cry. I watch them grow. Like much more than i And I think to myself.